So welcome to the, the third of this series on atrocity and religion in European memory. Um, wars always inevitably produce atrocities, but not all of them to the same extent. Civil wars, when your enemy are rebels or criminals or tyrants, rather than simply foreign powers, are particularly liable to produce atrocities, and doubly so religious civil wars in which the enemy are blasphemers or agents of the devil who's going to dare say that there are some punishments which Satan's servants don't deserve. In fact, by the very act of violating the norms of war, you can demonstrate your own superlative zeal for the cause. So the age of the religious wars in Europe was naturally an age of atrocities. And in this lecture, I want to look at two such atrocities in particular, how they came about and what their effects have been since. At the end, I will even attempt an answer to my slightly silly title. But first, let's be clear what we're talking about. We're looking at the period from the 1540s to the 1640s, when Europe's fault line between Catholic and Protestant repeatedly erupted into full-scale warfare. This was a consequence of the Protestant Reformation, but not an immediate one. You'll notice that the first of the, the, the sort of full-dress religious wars in 1546-7 followed nearly three decades after Martin Luther's initial protest triggered the Reformation. Three decades in which more conventional and small-scale techniques of religious coercion, like inquisitorial trials, had tried and failed to keep the burgeoning divisions under control. And at the same time in which repeated attempts at negotiated settlements and compromises had also failed, despite some very heavyweight backing. In other words, war came as a last resort, when everything else had already been tried and when bitterness was already entrenched. And there are religious wars in Germany, in Scotland, in England, in Switzerland, elsewhere. But today I want to concentrate on two of them. So first... Is it going to be working after that? Could we move on to the first slide? <laughs> the Netherlands, by which I mean an area extending across the modern Netherlands, Belgium, a decent slice of what's now northeastern France. So this is one of the wealthiest and most densely populated regions of the world. But it's an area which, due to the accidents of dynastic marriages and inheritance, was under the rule of King Philip II of Spain. The Spanish are famously robust in their Catholicism, but despite formidable repression, the new Protestant message, especially in its militant Calvinist variant, was finding increasing support in the Netherlands. In the spring and summer of 1566, Spanish control temporarily broke down producing the event that the Dutch called the Wonder Year. This is a, a surge of Protestant open-air preaching and destruction of Catholic imagery. And that lasted as long as it took for a Spanish army to get there and put an end to it. And that's followed by a wave of executions, six years of martial law, piracy and terrorist actions undertaken by exiled and underground Protestant groups. It takes six years till 1572 for this to really burst into the open, 
when that year the Protestants' ragtag navy is welcomed into the town of Denbriel in Holland, and that triggers a full-scale revolt against Spanish rule. And so the Dutch War is therefore a nationalist revolt against Spain and a Protestant war against Catholic rulers at the same time. During the 1570s, it briefly looks as if the nationalist cause might sweep all before it, as Netherlanders, Catholic and Protestant alike, are united by Spanish atrocities, in particular by the horrifying sack of the city of Antwerp in November 1576, in which at least 7,000 civilians are killed over three days by rioting unpaid Spanish troops. But in the end, the religious divisions ran too deep. Most Netherlandish Catholics in the end remained loyal to Spain, and after a gruelling conflict that isn't finally resolved until 1648, the Netherlands was split between an independent Protestant north, more or less the modern kingdom of the Netherlands, and a Spanish-ruled Catholic south, the predecessor state of modern Belgium. So that's the Dutch side. Meanwhile, a conflict that's maybe even more destructive was playing out in France, traditionally such a bastion of Catholicism. As in the Netherlands, it begins with a breakdown of government authority in 1560 that leads to an explosion of interest in and then conversion to Protestants for reasons that nobody adequately can explain. French Protestants become known as Huguenots during this period. By early 1562, as much as 15% of the French population and maybe half of the high nobility is affiliated with the new Calvinist churches, which is not bad from a standing start. These are heady, exciting, frightening months. It seems plausible, it even seems inevitable that France as a whole is going to flip and turn Protestant. The government isn't going to stop it. King Charles IX is only 11 years old and his mother, Queen Catherine de' Medici, is chiefly interested in stitching up a compromise to hold the kingdom together. She's openly willing to grant toleration to the Protestants to do this. But much of the Catholic population felt differently. And they have a leader in the Duke of Guise, who's the head of a powerful princely family who are not about to abandon Catholic France to a gaggle of heretics without a fight. On Sunday the 1st of March 1562, the Duke and his entourage stopped to hear mass at the small town of Vassy in eastern France, near Troyes. But mass wasn't all they could hear. The distinctive French-language psalm singing of a Calvinist congregation in a barn next door disturbed their service. The Duke and some of his soldiers demanded that they be silent. They refused. Guise's men tried to push into the barn. Stones were thrown and one of them hit the Duke himself. Now, it may be that he was looking for an excuse or that he was genuinely provoked, but whatever, he ordered his men to seal the barn and burn it to the ground. The most reliable accounts, not that anybody's account of an event like this is ever truly reliable, put the death toll at or around 63 worshippers. There was a newly coined word for an event like this in France. Since the late 1540s, the old word for a butcher's chopping block, a massacre, had been used for this sort of mass butchery as well. The massacre at Vassy is a classic example of how violence can polarise 
what had been a tangled situation. Because now Protestants took up arms in self-defense and the Duke of Guise's Catholic hardliners took their chance to try to cleanse the realm of Protestants and the crown tried helplessly to hold the ring. Periodically, over the next 35 years, successive kings imposed compromised peace settlements, but they never held for long before violence erupted again, at least not until the 1590s when King Henry IV finally managed to impose a settlement which granted real, although limited, civil, legal and military rights to the Protestant minority. The questions often asked, are these really wars of religion? They were called so at the time. Of course, plainly, religion never exists in the abstract. It's tangled up with politics and economics and nationalism and culture and all the other things that human beings kill each other about. These weren't pure wars of religion, not that there could ever be such a thing. But they would have been inconceivable without it. And we can see that if we look at the nature of the violence itself, as a famous argument made by the brilliant American historian Natalie Zeman Davis established. Consider a recurrent feature of the religious wars, which I've already mentioned, iconoclasm. The deliberate destruction by Protestants of objects which, to Catholics, were sacred. We might find this unpleasantly familiar the echoes, for example, of the destruction of the ruins of Palmyra by the jihadists of Islamic State in 2015 are not an accident. But this phenomenon is worth pausing on because in the middle of a religious war, it's got two meanings, neither of which is the one we might instinctively give to it today. For the iconoclasts, for the Protestants, these items are blasphemies. They are insults to God. They're so profoundly offensive that if you were to leave them be, you would implicitly be condoning them and so sharing in the guilt. And the fact that they are found in churches makes it all the more urgent to remove them. How could God's people possibly be expected to worship in the presence of these travesties, these mockeries of what true religion is? There are plenty of biblical verses mocking the use of idols, insisting that God does not live in temples made by human hands, that he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. The Ten Commandments teach, as plainly as you like, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. If you want to feel some of the same sense of horror and outrage that they felt, imagine how we would feel about displays of swastikas, or fascist imagery today. When post-war Germany cleansed churches of decorations that looked like this. This is one of very few photographs that survive of a church that was redecorated during the Nazi era. Nobody was protesting that that was a part of the rich architectural heritage of the nation and ought to have a preservation order slapped on it. Such things stink in God's nostrils, was the logic. And we show our liberation from the horrors that they represent by demonstratively destroying them. One obvious sign of this was that the iconoclasm sometimes had a ritual dimension to it. We hear again and again of cases where images aren't only removed, but they're burned. It's the punishment for heretics. Or sometimes statues of the Virgin Mary had their noses cut off. And if the meaning of that isn't immediately clear, Remember that one of the most visible and horrifying symptoms of advanced syphilis is saddle nose deformity, that is, most of the nose falling off. 
Syphilis is endemic across Europe throughout this period. It's naturally associated with moral corruption and especially with prostitution, so much so that in some jurisdictions, illicit prostitutes could be punished by having their noses cut off. So to do that to a statue of the Virgin Mary, to the ultimate symbol of sexual purity, that is to assert very directly that this statue is not the perpetually celibate mother of God. It's a mockery of her, a painted strumpet made to lure the faithful from their true beloved into spiritual fornication with some rabble-painted harlot. These images needed not only to be exposed for what they were, and the Christian community which had tolerated these things to cleanse itself, lest God's wrath be poured out onto the society which had turned a blind eye to these depravities for too long. Beside these sorts of concerns, our modern worries about historical or artistic value would have seemed like pathetic muley. Yes, of course these objects were pretty. That's what makes them dangerous. But if you're a Catholic, of course, the question is reversed. It's, it's not merely the blasphemy that they felt in the act of deliberately violating a statue created to honour a saint. I mean, of course, they're well aware it's just a piece of wood. There are also relics, objects physically connected to a saint, even parts of their bodies, points at which the kingdom of heaven touches earth, through which the faithful continued to receive miracles of healing. And now the Protestants are wantonly destroying these things, as if they loathe everything that's holy. Churches that had been beautified at great cost over centuries as generations of faithful Christians had labored so that everything that believers saw or heard could lift up their hearts to heaven. Now it's all being ripped out. And the Catholics are being told that they are the blasphemers. And it came to a head over the most contentious object of all, the consecrated host that was kept reserved in most Catholic churches. Because for Catholics, according to the famous doctrine of transubstantiation, Although this object looked like a small white wafer, it was, in fact, the real physical flesh of Jesus Christ, body, blood, and bone. And it should be treated with all the reverence and, in the fullest sense, all the worship that is due to God himself. And for Protestants, this is the ultimate blasphemy. This little object is literally being worshipped as God. It's their duty to the true God who is so perilously mocked by this parody, to snatch these wafers from the priest's hand and grind them into the mud. Still, iconoclasm does have this much going for it. It is violence against objects, not against people. And it's true that a lot of Protestant violence is directed that way, but not all, because that boundary is one that's easily crossed. After all, when a Catholic priest is celebrating this foul satanic ritual as they see it, um, or when Catholics are holding a solemn procession with a saint's statue, a Protestant mob or individual provocateur might try to stop them, and that's the way that riots start. Catholic priests, monks, and nuns were particularly liable to be attacked. During the terrorist phase of the Dutch Revolt that I was mentioning earlier in the late 60s, a group in Flanders known as the Woodbeggars staged a series of outrages in which priests were murdered. 
Several of the bodies were mutilated, either, either before or after they were killed, most commonly by castrating them. It's an all-too-obvious comment on the way that Catholic priests' compulsory celibacy was both unnatural and a cloak for their voracious lusts. It's like the mutilation of the statues of the Virgin. It's a statement that supposed holiness is actually a cloak for corruption. And the statement is the same whether it's written on wood or on human flesh. Priests are also murdered during the French religious wars. This incident in which a priest was tied to the crucifix in his own church and then shot is a particularly powerful symbol of the way that violence that begins by cleansing the temple of idolatrous objects can easily spill over into cleansing it of idolatrous people. So powerful a symbol, in fact, that we've got to wonder whether this really did happen, um, or at least whether it happened quite the way this propagandistic pamphlet portrayed it. I I'm not so much questioning the account as saying that this is such a picture-perfect atrocity that if it weren't true, Catholic propagandists would have had to invent it. In any case, the larger point stands. Protestant violence began with destroying sacred objects and ended with killing sacred people and anyone who defended them. Catholic violence aimed in much the same way to cleanse Christian society from pollution and impurity, but with one key difference. The impure elements were not objects, but people, the persons of the heretics themselves. From the start, Catholic violence tended to be directed at religious cleansing by terrorizing, driving out, exterminating the heretical infestation. This is a, a painting of the Catholic League in Paris marching through in hunt of her, for, for heretics. And you can see here the friar firing almost at random into the crowd. The gangrenous limb by this view, needs to be cut out of Christendom to stop the rot from spreading. Urgent surgical necessity means that normal niceties like due process or the presumption of innocence are luxuries that can't be afforded. Sometimes there was a rough process of sort. There's a repeated scene in several French cities on the eve of the civil wars in which a group of Catholic vigilantes would set up an impromptu saint's shrine in the street and then challenge passers-by to cross themselves or otherwise show appropriate devotion. If you refused, you would likely be murdered on the spot as a Protestant. And it's often overlaid with an apocalyptic urgency. After all, the collapse of Christian society into internecine warfare looked very like a sign of the end of the age. This is the beginning of Armageddon. It's the final test in which Christ is going to spit out the lukewarm moderates from his mouth and demand true allegiance. For Catholics to purge the realm of heretics in a moment like that was both an urgent necessity and a glorious privilege. It's a chance to be a warrior for God. And in that sense, the actual warfare, you know, clashes between armies, is almost peripheral. It's events like the burning of the barn at Vassy that shows what it's really aimed at. In the next century, one of the shrewdest observers of the English Civil War commented that the war was begun in our streets before the king or parliament had any armies. And that comment could stand for the era of the religious wars as a whole. The real wars happened between two mobilized civilian populations, each one desperately trying to cleanse their community of fatally dangerous pollution. 
if Catholic apocalypticism tended to take off any constraints from their violence, the Protestants are also apocalyptic, but it plays out in a slightly different way. The Protestants are theologically inclined to expect and indeed to revel in persecution and victimhood. Martin Luther had primed them to expect to follow in Christ's footsteps and to suffer the way he suffered. They read in the New Testament that God disciplines those whom he loves, that it's a grace, a privilege to suffer injustice for the sake of the gospel. So maybe they didn't exactly seek suffering out, but when it came, they're not surprised by it, and they're also not deterred by it. You can arrest them, you can murder them, you can massacre them, and you will only stiffen their resolve and prove them right. They will take up and retell the story of their sufferings and they will turn it against you. They are, in fact, a remarkably difficult community to intimidate. Violence just doesn't seem to work against them. There would be several ways for their enemies to respond to that frustrating fact, but the obvious one, of course, was to redouble their efforts. If you can't scare them, you can at least kill them. All right, enough generalities. I want to look at two particular events during the religious wars which show the way that particular atrocities could happen in this system and how they could break it. One Dutch, one French. From October 1573 to October 1574, the rebel Dutch city of Leiden was besieged by the Spanish. There's a brief break in April, May 74 when some resupply is possible. The siege itself isn't particularly violent. The Spanish can't assault the city because the ground is too wet to dig trenches. But it is tight, apart from that brief interlude in the spring. Around 6,000 of the city's 15,000 people died during the siege, mostly during the second phase of it, um, from May until the city's relieved on the 3rd of October. The relief of Leiden is, is a decisive battle during the, the war for Dutch independence. If the city had fallen to the Spanish, then South Holland would have, have lain at Spain's feet, whereas the Dutch victory helped to provoke a wave of desertions by Spanish soldiers and effectively marks the, uh, the, the eviction of the Spanish from the province of Holland. This is partly because the victory is a, a genuinely impressive military achievement in a very Dutch way. It happens by cutting dikes so as to deliberately flood large parts of the countryside, forcing the Spanish to retreat further and enabling a fleet of rebel barges to reach the city and deliver 8,000 soldiers and some fresh supplies. Even so, the relieving forces fought their way through to the city painfully slowly. As deaths mounted, there were riots against a city government that refused to surrender, bitter divisions while the property of Catholic citizens was seized and redistributed. But although food was tight, the city wasn't on the edge of starvation. The deaths were mostly due to disease, or they called it plague. What it actually was is anyone's guess. Food, though, wasn't about to run out. There was a ration of horse meat still being distributed to every household until just before the end of the siege. But this isn't quite the way the events remembered. And remembered it was. Here I should say I'm following the terrific Dutch historian Judith Pullman. It became one of the great myths of the Dutch revolt. The story of how the city had hung on in the face of starvation until finally the relieving force arrived 
and had distributed herring and bread to the people. You can see the, the, the figure on the left there holding up the, 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 the loaf and the fish. It's a, it's a plain echo of Christ's feeding of the 5,000. Um, in reality, they'd also given out cheese, but that doesn't fit the story so neatly. <laughs> the plague also tends to be written out of the account, that because plague looks uncomfortably like divine judgment rather than Spanish cruelty. And instead, the stories that are told focused on the moment of deliverance, which is, is depicted again and again. They emphasize the courage and sufferings of the people and their unity in the face of mounting hunger. The city's mayor, Peter van der Werf, becomes one of the heroes. Supposedly, he faced down the faint hearts who wanted to surrender by telling them that they'd have to kill him first and offering to cut off his own arm in order to feed the hungry rather than to give in. Unsurprisingly, these stories are, are much encouraged by his own family and descendants. And others grabbed their share of the glory as well. The city had been kept in touch with the rebel forces during the siege by carrier pigeons. Um, and the owners of the pigeons became heroes. They were granted, the family who owned them were granted a new coat of arms and the surname Van Duvenbode of the carrier pigeons. The pigeons themselves were, when they died, were stuffed and displayed in the town hall. We can't see those anymore. But you can still see the Van Duvenbode monument in Leiden. Most aristocratic monuments were destroyed in the wake of the French Revolution, but not this one. As you can see, it was renovated in 1818. And as the siege faded into memory, as the town's population rapidly grew, so very few of its residents had even a familial connection with the siege, the legends grew ever more extreme. A history of the siege written in 1642 described how bones chewed first by the dogs were sucked dry by boys, when a piece of meat fell on the floor at the place where they handed out the meat, they leapt at it and wolfed it down raw. The blood was scooped out of the gutters and slurped down. Now, narratives of starvation in cities under siege are a well-worn genre going back to ancient times. But these stories didn't quite take the normal tack in which there are tales of cannibalism and social breakdown. Instead, these tales emphasize the citizens' stoic self-sacrifice with nursing mothers who are unable to produce milk feeding their starving infants with their own blood. The tales also emphasized social solidarity, the rich and the poor alike, Catholics and Protestants together, sharing what little they had. Relics of the siege are, are, are treasured, in particular cooking vessels that had been used during it are brought out again and used for the feasts which are held for the annual celebration of the relief on the 3rd of October. Leiden's university took up the theme. Sermons were preached on it annually. Plays are staged. And in the process, the divisions which had racked the city during the siege are airbrushed out of the account. Legend firmly insisted that everyone had suffered together. Catholic, Protestant, rich, poor. A divided nation could join in commemorating their collective suffering at the hands of the Spanish. This newly staged photographic image of the siege was commissioned by the City Museum in 2011. So I think we have to recognize that this still popular myth was a largely benevolent way of processing the traumatic memory of the siege. By concentrating on an injustice that the whole city suffered, 
It could knit together a religiously divided society with the soothing power of victimhood. And until modern historians got hold of the legend with their carping insistence on unwelcome values like facts, everybody was happy. Of course, the legend did also require demonizing the Spanish as a national enemy. But this is what they mean when they say that history is written by the victors. My second event is a darker story. And this one comes from the French Wars. By 1570, there had been three bouts of open warfare, each one brought to an end when the crown tries to impose a compromise settlement. The 1570 compromise looked just as fragile as its predecessors. But the young king, Charles IX, and his mother, Catherine de' Medici, who's still very much his ruling alongside him, had a plan in two parts. First of all, a marriage alliance. They're going to marry the most highborn of the Calvinist noblemen, Henry of Navarre, who is in fact later going to become king and convert to Catholicism in order to secure his throne. But at the moment, he's the, the, the leader of the, um, of, of, of the Calvinists in name, at least. They're going to marry him to the king's own sister, Margaret. And they're going to use this united front to take France to war against the old enemy, Spain, because they hoped that that might unite the, the warring religious parties just as it was going to happen in the Netherlands a few years later. It's not a foolish plan. They're not the only politicians hoping to find a way to break the religious impasse. Queen Elizabeth I in England is doing, trying to do very much the same thing. So in August 1572, the great and good of both parties gathered in Paris for the wedding. Everybody knows that the city itself is overwhelmingly and violently Catholic. It has an embattled Protestant minority protected against vigilante attacks only by the crown's determination to impose a pacification, a pacification that much of the citizenry do not want. But for the moment, the city chafes but accepts it. The marriage takes place in Notre Dame on the 18th of August, despite the Pope's condemnation of a marriage between a Catholic and a heretic. And soon the assembled notables are going to disperse. Maybe it's going to work. Then, on Friday the 22nd of August, Gaspard de Coligny, the Protestant nobleman who's the most important military leader of the Protestants, is shot in the street and badly wounded. Nobody knew for sure then, we still don't know exactly who shot him or why, but we do know that the shot was fired from a house belonging to the Dukes of Guise, the leaders of the rejectionist Catholic faction. Instantly, this plunges the capital into a crisis. There's rumour, counter-rumour, there still is about what happened. Quite what went on between the Friday and the Sunday morning is still hotly contested. Uh, for myself, I am not persuaded that the original assassination attempt was planned or sanctioned by the king and the queen mother. But it might have been. Certainly the paranoid rumours that whipped through Paris that weekend suggested that it was. It's pretty obvious that this is not going to end well. Another round of religious war seems inevitable. There's the fear that the Calvinist leaders gathered in Paris might attempt to coup, might try and seize the king. Certainly rising fury from the Calvinists suggested that they were going to strike back in some way. Coligny is urged to leave Paris and mobilize his army, but instead he chooses to remain. He says that he's going to trust the king and the queen mother to keep the peace. 
The royal family and their advisers spent much of Saturday the 23rd cloistered in a crisis meeting at the Louvre. Obviously, we don't know exactly what happened, but I can tell you what seems likely. They're aware that the city is a powder keg, that the presence of the Calvinist leadership makes this a very dangerous moment. They're aware that rightly or wrongly, they're being blamed for the assassination attempt. The king and his mother decide that the time has come to abandon their attempt to play both sides. Instead, they had what seemed to them an opportunity to mount a coup of their own, to act swiftly and suddenly, to cut off the head of the snake, to bring this endless civil war to an end at a stroke, to take out the entire Calvinist leadership, who are right there. The rumours circulating that the Calvinists themselves were planning to seize or to murder the king only made it seem more urgent. What we know is that late on the Saturday, the 23rd, it's decided to follow up the botched assassination of Coligny with a simultaneous strike against the entire Calvinist leadership to be carried out by the king's personal guard together with the Duke of Guise's men. Overnight, the city's gates are sealed. Boats on the Seine are impounded in order to prevent any escape. The murders began at around 4 a.m. on Sunday, the 24th, the 4th of August, St. Bartholomew's Day. St. Bartholomew ominously is the patron saint of butchers. It's a festival day when norms are already half suspended. The king's Swiss guard break into the house where the injured Coligny is being tended, and he is swiftly murdered. But the break-in, and maybe the ringing of bells, had already roused a neighbourhood that was at hair-trigger readiness. Maybe this is the Protestant coup that everybody's so frightened of. Catholics poured out into the streets, but it turned out to be something else. It's been very plausibly argued that the critical moment is when the Duke of Guise himself comes out of Coligny's lodgings after the murder, and there, in the street, in the hearing of the crowd that's beginning to gather, instructed his men to move on to the rest of the Calvinist leadership, and said the words, le roi le veut, the king commands it. For Paris's fervently Catholic population, who had spent 10 or more years being restrained by the king from purging the Protestant pollution in their midst, this is a moment of release. It's a long overdue permission to do what they had always known would have to be done. The rumour swept through the city. In other words, the massacre that followed doesn't seem to have been actively premeditated by the king or his mother. They'd planned a targeted strike against the leadership. What they got instead was a genocidal purge. This early woodcut shows the, the whole story from Coligny's assassination on the, on the left through to his eventual murder in his bedroom at the top, his, his body being dumped out of the window, and then the killing beginning in the street. The numbers are disputed. But a sensible guess of the deaths in Paris on St. Bartholomew's Day and the two or three days following would be 3,000, give or take. But the numbers don't convey the experience very well. For example, the Protestant merchant family of Matelin Lousseau had imagined that the fact they've got business dealings with the royal court would give them some protection. When the doorbell was rung early that morning, Matelin himself went to answer it and he stabbed to death on the spot. His son managed to escape into the street, beat on a neighbor's door for refuge, 
but the neighbour refused to open and the young man was butchered in the street. His mother, Mazarin's wife, jumped from an upstairs window into a next-door courtyard, breaking both her legs in the fall. She was at least luckier with her choice of neighbour because this one hid her in his cellar. But the mob spotted the open window, worked out where she was, and dragged her out into the street by her hair. They cut off her hands to get the bracelets on her wrist and then impaled her on a roasting spit, dragging her body through the streets before dumping it in the river. A number of witnesses reported that the Seine ran red with blood by the end of the day, and that may be more than just a figure of speech. Only a minority of Paris's Catholics are actively involved in the killing. But if most of their neighbors were too ambivalent or too frightened to shelter fugitives or to face down the mobs, a minority is all that you need. Most of those who were killed were Protestants, but some Catholics who did try to protect their Protestant neighbors are killed too. Some of those neighbors protected them because they seem to have been genuinely horrified. The Duke of Guise himself, the arch-Catholic, sheltered a number of Protestant families in his Paris house, although he did also try to have some of their children rebaptized as Catholics. Others are more openly mercenary. There are some Protestants who paid handsomely for the shelter that they received. And as Madame Lusso's grisly example shows, there is pillage and looting, but it tends to be secondary, opportunistic. This is a case of God's soldiers taking a well-earned reward for their service. It's not the purpose of the killing. Again, there's a ritual quality to these murders, which is a constant theme. The small children whose parents are killed in front of them and who are then stripped naked and dipped in their parents' blood as a kind of anti-baptism. It's a way of freeing them from the stain of Calvinism so that they can be allowed to live. Or the Protestant bookseller who's burned alive on a bonfire of his own heretical books the Protestants who are forced to recite Catholic prayers before they're killed, we're past the point where you could save yourself that way, although no doubt some people tried. Above all, there's a quasi-judicial quality to some of these murders. This is a crowd that wants to think of itself as fulfilling royal and divine commands, not as a murderous mob. Coligny's body is mutilated and paraded through the city, rioters calling themselves his judges, proclaim the sentence against him at each intersection before they dump the body in the river. It's no accident that so many of these stories end in the river. That's the providential means that God's provided to wash the guilty city clean. By all accounts, the king and the court are both surprised and alarmed, maybe not horrified, by, by what's happened. By midweek, the city's brought under control. But by then, events have already been set in motion. During September and into October, there are copycat massacres in a dozen other cities, in Orléans, Lyon, Troyes, Rouen, Bordeaux, Toulouse, elsewhere. Royal, royal letters had quickly gone out, urging the provincial governors to keep the peace, but not quite quickly enough. Some of those in Paris on the morning of St. Bartholomew's Day, and remember, everybody's there, seem to have been given verbal instructions at court, which they took as command or as permission to follow Paris's example. And in cities which have been chafing at the open presence of heresy for a decade, that's all it took. A spark of legitimacy is enough. The king hasn't endorsed massacres, but he's hesitated and equivocated. 
None of the provincial cities endured killing on quite the same scale as Paris, but between them they more than doubled the death toll, which quite plausibly stood the wrong side of 10,000. So what did it mean? Well, the king's eventual efforts to bring an end to the killing might indicate that this is one of those atrocities that nobody wants to claim. But in fact, many Catholics continued to celebrate it as a long overdue providentially enabled act of cleansing, of which, about which the only thing to regret is that it was brought to a premature end. Famously, notoriously, Pope Gregory XIII ordered mass to be sung in celebration when he heard the news. It seemed to indicate that the King of France had finally stopped playing both sides and had turned decisively to the true faith. The Pope has this commemorative medal struck when he heard, hears the news, um, you know, showing an avenging angel striking down the heretics and with the unambiguous words, massacre of the Huguenots. Uh, he also commissioned these splendid frescoes by Vasari that you can still see in the Apostolic Palace. Um, if we look more closely at the one on the left, we can see at, at the top um, Coligny's murder uh, moving to the massacre itself. It would be a generation before French Catholic stories of the massacre begin to change. Um, and you start to find the emphasis being placed on the brutality of the mob, and instead tales being told of individuals like the governor of Provence, who was told that the king, supposedly told that the king had ordered a massacre, and replied, I've always served the king as a soldier, but I would be dismayed to serve him as an executioner. Soon enough, Catholic France tried to forget the massacre, and subsumed it into the act of collective willful amnesia, that was applied to the era of the civil wars as a whole, a kind of both sidesism that smothered individual events within a sort of distancing moral equivalency. That's easy if you're a Catholic. For the Protestants, things are different. Maybe the most important reaction, understandably enough, is shock. I said that the numbers of the dead are still disputed. Unsurprisingly, in the first wave of rumors, the guesses trended high. 50,000, 100,000 dead were spoken of. The whole of France, Geneva's city council wrote, is bathed in the blood of innocent people and covered with dead bodies. Letters written by Protestants in the immediate aftermath of the massacre are, are numb with disbelief because they've come to Paris believing that there's going to be a new settlement. Instead, their leaders are dead. The king has turned on them. They're sure it's a fully premeditated plot. Thousands of their brethren have been butchered. This is maybe the most important consequence of the massacre. I said before the way that Protestants interpret persecution as a sign of God's approval and are therefore inoculated against intimidation. Well, up to a point, the massacre broke the bravado of their martyr complex. The scale and the speed of the killing left dazed survivors questioning whether God was really on their side. And while in truth the numbers of the dead are only a tiny proportion of France's Protestants, the massacre virtually eliminates Protestantism from large areas of the country. In Rouen, for example, in Normandy, for every Protestant who's killed in the city, 10 converted to Catholicism that month. The Protestant minorities who'd held on in a great many regions are effectively snuffed out. But they're not a minority everywhere, and not all of the leaders are killed. Especially in their strongholds in the southwest, the massacre provokes not surrender, but outrage and defiance. The city of La Rochelle, 
took up arms almost immediately, refused to let a royal governor in. Within weeks, it's under siege and another religious war has started. As news spread across the continent, Protestants everywhere are confirmed in all of their worst suspicions. It became common knowledge that the massacre had been coordinated from Rome, had indeed been planned at the Council of Trent, the great Catholic council that had concluded nine years previously. I think we can forgive them some conspiracy theories. A French king who'd spent a decade trying to be a moderating influence had indeed suddenly changed sides. In retrospect, we can see that as a brief aberration made under extreme pressure. But it's not unreasonable to think that he's at last revealing his true colours. Anyway, the massacre quickly takes pride of place in international Protestantism's lovingly curated pantheon of Catholic atrocities. Christopher Marlowe staged a play about it, The Massacre at Paris, which depicts the massacre as a long-plotted Machiavellian scheme. And accounts continue to be published through the 17th and into the 18th century. It's treated rather like we nowadays treat the Nazi Holocaust, as a terrible event which it's your duty self-consciously to remember. And it fundamentally changed the nature of the war for the surviving Protestants. They are not fighting to get a grant of rights from the king anymore. This is now revolution. They see the king as a tyrant who has to be resisted or even assassinated. He is not a good lord who has been misled by wicked advisers. Radical constitutional theories, notions of lawful rebellion, start surfacing amongst the Protestants. After the bloodbath in Paris, it looks like there is no going back. This is why Thomas Carlyle in the 19th century said that without the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, there would have been no French Revolution. It's why 19th century anti-monarchists continued to recall it in paintings like this, showing the Queen Mother coming out in the morning and regarding the scene with grim satisfaction. Be that as it may, the meanings attached to this in France have changed over the centuries. The trouble, of course, is that French Protestants were finally expelled from France by Louis XIV in 1685. So there's no substantial French constituency that is still nursing the memory of its injuries. Instead, the massacre becomes, for example, for Voltaire, a symbol of religious intolerance and the abuse of power by churches in general. During the French Revolution, the stories strongly revived on these terms. Several plays of that era referenced it, most notably Joseph Chenier's Charles IX, which used the massacre to demonstrate that religions and kings are both equally evil. The play is blocked for many years by the censor. It's finally performed in November 1789, by which stage it's already notorious. One critic called the play An Evening of Blood, which in the context of the French Revolution was a compliment. Um, Robespierre's colleague Camille Desmoulins saw the play as having been decisive in moving the revolution forward. Chenier was a member of the National Convention and put his principles into practice when he voted for the execution of the king. The massacre hasn't exactly been forgotten since then. There was an opera about it in the 1830s. Mark Twain, in a particularly bleak mood of irony, called the massacre unquestionably the finest thing of the kind ever devised and accomplished in the world on the unarguable basis that all of the best people took a hand in it. There are still painters like this Russian who draw meaning from the story, noticing again at the top right the, the malign brooding power of the church. 
There were several cinematic depictions in the 20th century. There's even an early Doctor Who story, um, which, like many of the early Doctor Whos, is now sadly lost. We just have a few still images. The best-known cinematic version is the 1994 remake of the 1954 film of Alexandre Dumas' 1845 novel La Reine Margot, which has a very lengthy and graphic depiction of the massacre and distinguished in a peculiarly Gallic way by the fact that a great many of the participants don't appear to have been wearing very many clothes. <laughs> Still, for such a cataclysmic event, its modern cultural footprint is relatively modest. And I think for a simple reason, that neither its victims nor even its villains have that much salience anymore. French Protestantism isn't extinct, but it doesn't cherish its persecution in the same way. And French Catholicism has been frozen out of any kind of power for over a century now. And France hasn't had either kings or emperors for 150 years. In other words, the story no longer really serves anyone's cause. And it can become just a backdrop to a different kind of story, as in La Reine Margot, or as in the pre-Raphaelite painting by Millet, a Huguenot on St. Bartholomew's Day, which manages to turn the massacre into a story of doomed and heroic love. Don't let anybody tell you that romantic trivialization is a modern invention. So how do you survive a massacre? in the wars of religion. Well, don't answer the front door while it's going on. <laughs> but the contrasting examples of Leiden and Paris mean we can answer that question on two slightly less superficial levels. If you are a community that has suffered an atrocity, you survive and recover from it by making the right use of it by not allowing it to break your nerve and instead keeping its memory alive as a means to unite you against your foes. As we've seen, in that sense, parts of French Protestantism survived the massacre and others didn't, whereas the Dutch managed to use the sufferings of Leiden and the atrocities that followed much more effectively. Most importantly, if you are a country where an atrocity like this has taken place, setting citizens against each other, creating bitter memories of betrayal and murder that, that could be remembered for generations. You survive the trauma not by trying to forget it, but by the way you choose to remember it. So if you're the Dutch, you play down the divisions, you forget the plague, you emphasize communal suffering, you make sure that foreigners are the common enemy, and you slather the story thickly enough with myth that it becomes a uniting rather than a dividing force. And once that myth has dried hard for a century or two, enough will have healed underneath that the historians can be let loose to break things up without any obvious danger. If you're the French, you wait until bitterness has finally exhausted itself. You allow it to be crowded out by more modern traumas, and finally you reach a point where the story of the atrocity no longer moves anybody to call for fresh blood. Then, and only then, when it's simply become history, and the dead can be allowed to rest in peace, can a nation truly say that it survived a massacre? Thank you. Mm -hmm.